The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Next few minutes. And mindfulness is actually a bodyful and heartful state. The translation of mindfulness. So let's bring it down into the chest area, down into the body. Take the literal meaning of that. Establish mindfulness in front of the chest. And ever mindful, breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in long, you know I'm breathing in long. Breathing out short, you know I'm breathing out short. So just discerning, noticing that you know when breathing in and breathing out is happening. It doesn't say to judge the breath as being right or wrong in any way. Just discerning, how is it? Is it shallow, deep, rough, smooth? Feeling it from inside the body, the body in and of itself without reference to our ideas about how it should be. From within the torso somewhere, within the center of the body. See if you can stay with each half-breath from the beginning to the end. And then the next half-breath, the next out-breath, from the beginning to the end. Being with the felt sense of breathing in the body. Feeling the stretching rising, expanding move of the in-breath, relaxing back of the out-breath. What do you notice about how you feel the breath in the body? Do you feel the breath expanding out into your back, moving the back of your ribcage, moving the sides, moving the front? How far down in your lower abdomen do you feel the sensation of breathing in 
There's no need to force it, just noticing. The sensation of feeling is maybe a little edge of where the tension doesn't go any further. The stretching, the end of the stretch. The Buddha suggests you train yourself. I will breathe in sensitive to the entire body. The subtle breath has the ability to move and affect every part of the body. How much do you perceive the breath as a gentle wave that moves and massages and affects every part of the body? Each part moves a little and moves the next part. Maybe some parts of the body are held and numb and tight, not willing to move. Can't feel anything there. That's perfectly natural. The final part of the breath instruction is, I will breathe in calming bodily formations. Bodily formations, these holding patterns, the tight places, the twitchy places. All the ways in which our past experience of suffering is held in the body, calming them, loosening them, relaxing them, letting them open and unfold. Never forcing anything. Just staying very simple, staying with the body's experience, either in a particular part where you feel it most strongly, or the whole body. Softly expanding, stretching, relaxing back.
So we remain focused on the body in and of itself. Anything we feel through the sense of feel in the body, sense of inner touch, simply noticing it, noticing its quality of roughness, smoothness, solidity, fluidity, heat, coolness, movement, vibration, Everything in the body is in constant shimmering movement. Can we just rest with that? Clearly seeing it. Seeing the beginning of each in-breath. The moment when the conditions for breathing in change and begins an out-breath. The end of the out-breath. There may be a pause. The movement of releasing the breath is finished ended. And then the next beginning, very beginning of the in-breath. Noticing that you don't have to do anything to make your body breathe in. You can just step back. And notice that the body begins to breathe in when the conditions are right for breathing in. When there's a sense of fullness and doesn't stretch any further, the conditions for breathing in are finished. The in-breath ends, the out-breath begins. There's the releasing of the out-breath. If other sensations arise in the body, just noticing them like you were the breath. You might notice them in terms of their quality, like roughness, hardness, softness, burning, coolness, flowingness. Getting beneath our ideas about what this is, as if we've never seen it before. We have no idea what it is. We have to feel our way into it. Let it present itself to the sense of touch. What is this? The body in and of itself, 
constantly bathed and massaged by the gentle movement of the breath. Noticing if your attention wanders off into thoughts or images. See if you can just come back to that point down in the chest, the heart center or the belly center. Just being with the body in and of itself from within the body. Receiving the flow of changing sensations. Just let yourself be there for the next little thing you feel. You don't know what it's going to be. It arises, passes. Another little sensation arises, passes. If we don't grab on and think about make something out of each little sensation, then we're there for the next one, and the next one. And our attention loosens up, and the body loosens up, and the mind can flow along with the body, the flow of bodily sensations. Allowing everything to be felt to arise, do its dance, live its little life, pass on, the next thing arises. In a moment, I'll ring the bell and you can open your eyes when you're ready. So here we are at right mindfulness, the seventh factor of the path, and we're in the... We've talked before about how the path is broken into three parts. The wisdom part, the initial wisdom part, which is the the view and the intention. And in the beginning the view is 
uh, okay, we should practice, we should do something about suffering, <laughs> we should start to do something along these lines. The intention to have wholesome intentions, to keep our, attention, our intentions in the forefront of our mind. And then the ethical part of looking at our speech and our actions and our livelihood. And probably if you've learned something by being in this course for the last few months, it's how much we need mindfulness to be able to do the rest of this path, right? How can we do right speech and right action if we're not aware of our intentions and aware of our views and beliefs that are behind our intentions and aware of what we're going to do? So the third part of the path, we taught, we began that last time with effort. Effort, mindfulness, and concentration all go together to be the mental cultivation portion of the path where we're really, we, we're pretty motivated now. We've seen where we're at with speech and mindfulness and how we live our lives and how can we deepen all those practices? Well, we need to deepen how much, how our minds work and how we relate to how we use our attention and, and uh, what's going on in there. And so, it's, so we study the mental cultivation factors of effort, taking the effort seriously to really practice with our minds and work with our minds and then mindfulness is this central jewel of the Buddhist practice of the way to see what's going on. And then we'll talk about concentration next week. Concentration develops out of right effort and right mindfulness. It's, it's the sort of steadiness of the right mindfulness and the right effort. So what does right mean in connection with mindfulness? It means, well, Jim read a beautiful description, and I would say that it's learning to use our attention in a way that leads to insight and wisdom and inner freedom. So we can use the word mindfulness lots of ways. You can, you know, pay attention to how well you're doing some criminal activity, but that's not mindfulness. <laughs> that's not right mindfulness. So uh, the Buddha defines right mindfulness, as Jim said, in terms of these four foundations. And I know Diana's going to talk quite a bit about what, what's meant by the foundation, so I'll leave that to her. But the Buddha, this is all described in a, the sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. Sati is the word for mindfulness, and it actually means remembering. So mindfulness is this English translation that we've put on it. And it, it's it's recollecting that that you're going to bring recollecting the attention remembering the attention into the present moment remembering what you're going to do so the sutta begins with the buddha say making this really remarkable declaration this is the direct path this is the only way monks for the purification of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation for the destruction of suffering and grief for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So you, you can't get to that inner freedom without paying attention in a skillful way to what's going on in your mind. So um, I want to look a little bit, mostly I'm going to focus on the instructions for mindfulness of the body, the first foundation, but I also want to talk a little bit about the what's called the refrain in this sutta. It's a part that's repeated before each section, and uh, I think it's important and has some interesting things on it. in it. Um, so, um, the monk remains focused on the body in and of itself or any of the other foundations, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful 
putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And that is repeated over and over again as how you set up when you sit down to be mindful, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful and putting aside worldly concerns. Okay? So just talking a little bit about each one of those things. Um, ardent really points to the fact that this, this is a heartful practice. We need to bring that intentionality to it. I was in a different group earlier in the week and, I don't know, last week, someone was talking about, well, when they sit down, they just feel like they just go sit down and then they don't really know what to do. You know, how is it different than sitting in their chair any other time? So it's important to actually ask that question for yourself. And when you sit down, really take the first moment or so to bring your attention to mind, see if you can connect with your heart, see if you can connect with your motivation for doing this practice, everything you've learned throughout the year and looking at how you're living your life and what is your motive. So really, the translation of mindfulness points too much back to the head in our culture. It's, it's heartfulness, it's bodyfulness, it's fullness of the entire, all the aspects of your being aligned in this way. So the ardency factor is very important. And then this um, clear comprehension. Uh, I wanted to talk, before I went, yeah, okay, we'll talk about that. Sorry. <laughs> I want to talk about these factors, but first I wanted to go back and talk about what focused in, on the, in the body in and of itself. So... A little bit of what I went over in the guided meditation, where he's talking about, I think it's interesting that it starts out saying you want to just discern or notice aspects of the breath. Are you breathing out long or short? And then he, he changes the verb to train yourself to be sensitive to the whole body. So that's acknowledging. There's, there's a lot of discussion recently among diff- several teachers about we teach bare attention a lot, like you just sit down and do nothing. And it can have a kind of passive flavor to it. And in a sense, yes, we need to do nothing. But if you literally sit down and do nothing, you will probably be swept away with your habits of thinking and planning and worrying and everything. So it takes a certain amount of energy to stay with the frame of reference that you're attending to, like the body within the body. And there are other suggestions for how to... This is a training... So we're training ourselves to be sensitive to the whole body. So you can play with moving your attention around and seeing where you feel the breath and which parts of your body are more accessible and which parts of your body are more tight and closed off. And then this business of calming the bodily formations, the bodily fabrications. Um, There's a wonderful book I've been reading called Breathing Through the Whole Body by Will Johnson. And I want to read a few quotes from him because he puts this so well. We all have a contraction at the core of our being, right in the center of our body and mind. This contraction makes us who we are, but it also limits us from becoming all that we are. And it hurts. Like a tightened fist, it keeps the life force that wants to pass freely through our body and mind held back and restrained. Its primary tendencies are to compress the energy of the body like a black hole drawing everything toward its center, and to tether the activity of the mind to the dimension of thought. Every time we tense the body in reaction, we add to the contraction, like a beaver adding another twig to a dam. 
every moment we relax, the contraction comes a bit undone. Through accepting, feeling into, allowing, coaxing, never forcing, you keep surrendering to the breath and to the puzzling possibility that it might breathe through more and more of your body. Like a current in a river confronting a log jam, the force of breath pushes up against the tension's walls in hopes of dissolving its barriers, turning tension in the body back into a shimmer and contraction in the mind back into presence. So this is a, a somewhat of an active exploration of where do you feel the breath in your body? Where is their tension? Where is their holding? And there's nothing you can do to force it, but simply by noticing it and allowing it, shining the warm sun of mindfulness on it, things can begin to relax and move. So, um, so we're sitting down to do this practice and we're bringing to it ardency and clear comprehension. So clear comprehension is... In, in one very famous last century Asian teacher, he always uses the terms mindfulness and clear comprehension together because they're so important to him. So mindfulness, it, it points again to that perp- right mindfulness. The purpose of mindfulness is to be aware of what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, you know, bringing those factors to light. So the four fact- factors that are usually described as being clear comprehension is that you're aware of the purpose of what you're doing. You know, why are you doing this? The suitability, is this the right practice for the moment? And when you're in your sitting meditation practice, suitability can be important. Is it, is it time to open up? You know, am I getting tight and giving into that inner contraction that Will Johnson was talking about? You can kind of cave in on yourself and be holding yourself tight. Is it time to open up and, you know, move, see what I can feel on the outer edges of my body? Or am I kind of spacing out and falling asleep? And is it time to get more precise with where exactly am I feeling certain sensations? So suitability of what you're doing with your intention. And then domain is the fourth thing, and that's related to what we're talking about, the body within the body. So you're staying just with the feelings, not with your associations of words with those feelings and you know, the story of how it happened or how to prevent it from happening and all that, but just what it feels like. And then finally, cultivating what what they call non-delusion, which is another word for wisdom. And in this context, it's part of that body within the body. So you're looking at it um, impersonally as just a feeling, just a sensation. And you're seeing also um, that arising and passing, which I'll talk about a little bit more. So when you have that impersonal frame of mind and something happens, you say you notice that you're breathing very shallowly or there's a pain in your knee and you can't fix it, you know, you don't turn to blaming yourself or I'm a bad meditator, right? You're keeping that frame of, you're keeping that impersonal understanding that this is a naturally caused phenomenon, there's tension, and you can feel into it, you can discover everything you can discover about how it's related to other holding patterns in the body, anything you can feel your way into, you know. But there's no point in adding on to more stories about yourself around that. Um, so I think that this uh, the description of mindfulness of the body in the Satipatthana Sutta is a long list of actually many practices all related to the body. And 
and looking at it, it, it seems to me that you can divide them into, they're, they're going after three different aspects of the practice. The first one is this calming the formations. So you're opening up to the body in this open, spacious way, letting things relax. The second, exp- the second group is really around the wider meaning of clear comprehension, which is you can take it out into daily life. So you're also, the next set of instructions in the sutta is that you know, just as you know when you're breathing in and breathing out, you know when you're walking, when you're standing, sitting, lying down, you know when you're coming and going, looking, bending, carrying, eating, chewing, savoring, urinating, defecating, talking, and remaining silent. So that might pretty much cover a monk's life (laughs) of what they're doing. And I've had a wonderful time practicing with this on retreat. It's one of my favorite things to do is those times in between when you get up and you're walking to get your cup of tea to really be with each step and each move. And there can be a wonderful fluidity and embodied gracefulness of really being with the arm as it reaches for the cup and feeling the hardness of the cup and hearing the clink of a cup someone else is using and the cup down and raising the arm and hearing the water and feeling the steam and feeling the heat and being with each step of that is a really lovely thing that you can do you know when you're doing the dishes taking a shower at some point at home having a little slice out of monastic intensive mindfulness at all times it really helps it helps it's a beautiful embodying process and it also helps with the cultivation of wisdom which is the theme the third theme in these uh, body practices so the more that you're in your body and not off in the past and in the future but actually with what you're doing the more you feel uh, non-separate from your existence in the world the more you realize that you are you know this physical assemblage moving through space and time and you can feel it and so in that way it cultivates uh, realizing in the sense of being real, getting real about what, you know, getting here and now and to this remarkable body that we have. So then the following practices are reflections. Oh, well, one more thing. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting this a little out of order here. There's one more part of the instructions that are, that I read in the meditation that are a little bit meditative related. Um, where it talks about remaining focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body and the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the body. So this is very interesting to to really... um, That's one understanding of how to pay more close attention. If, If your meditations tend to be kind of spacey and you don't really know what you're doing or what you're paying attention to, it can really sharpen up your mindfulness and lead to great wisdom to begin to notice things beginning and ending. So, you know, what's the next thing that you notice? Bring, slow down and bring your attention to the level where you really don't know what's going to happen next. And then let yourself, oh, you know, something arose. And it wasn't necessarily what I was thinking of. You know, it, it wasn't my train of thought. It, it arose out of conditions. And then it lasts a while and then it ends. And if you can really be there to see something that you've been paying attention to simply end. That's a profound moment that the mind registers, oh, things begin, things end. (laughs) And the more often it really notices that directly, the more 
deep wisdom really deepens in your practice. And the body is a great place to notice beginnings and endings. I have a feeling I'm running way over here. No, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> One more thing. Um, so very briefly, the rest of the uh, body section in this particular sutta that teaches mindfulness is um, reflections on deconstructing our ideas about the body in various ways. So we touched a little bit in the guiding on uh, what's called the four elements. So you can break down your subjective experience into what's traditionally called earth, air, fire, and water. So the solidity, the flowing, the heat, the, the vibratory movement. You know, so really all experience in the body can be categorized in one of those ways. So it's a filter that you can put on it. It helps with the impersonality. You know, oh, this is just um, earth element. This is solidity. This is softness. This is hardness. This is water. And also this part of the suggestion is that you are aware of that internally and externally. And it helps you see, to understand that just as the great world is made up of earth, air, fire, and water, so am I. So is this body. The same elements are experienceable externally and internally as just the movements of solidity. And in a way, you could almost relate it to the current understanding of matter. You know, there's solid matter and gases and liquids and energy, and that's what there is, right? And that's what we're made of, and we can see it directly. And then there are the the practices that we don't teach here very often that can be a little challenging, which is to go through the parts of the body you're really decomposing the body. And I love this. He's always, the Buddha is so earthy in his uh, metaphors. So just as you have a sack with openings at both ends, which is kind of like the body, right? And in there are various kinds of grain, wheat, rice, mung beans, and whatnot. And you look at it and you say, yeah, there's wheat, rice, mung beans, and this, that, and the other. So you look inside this body sack with openings at both ends. And what it's got in it is... Ah, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, gorge, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, skin, oil, saliva, mucus, fluids in the joints, and urine. And can you look at those different parts as impartially? You know, so it's a cultivation in not revulsion and not attraction. Right, it's it it helps with lust if you can see some lust object as composed of these items, and it can also work. You know, it can help you be a better nurse or doctor if you can see these items impartially and continue to relate from the heart while you're working with you know the less pleasant body parts in yourself or in someone else. So that's a wisdom teaching, and then um, the last teachings is looking at bodies, dead bodies, in states of decay. And we don't have much opportunity to do that here. But it's a powerful practice to reflect. And the reflection is when you see a body, and they go through a gruesome description of the, you know, quite a graphic description of different stages of decay. This body too, this body too, such as its nature, such as its future, such as its unavoidable fate. So, you know, I've been able to be with both my parents as they died in the last couple of years and it's quite powerful to see a body you know see a body go from a living personality oriented thing to a body and so the practice is that this this is just a body in and of a body it helps to disidentify with it it helps to be less 
constantly repelled and attracted by its superficial form. So those are reflections that you can do anytime uh, that are offered as very much part of the sutta. Okay, I'm stopping now. <laughs> so we have um, negative two minutes for questions and answers. <laughs> no, we don't. We have, we have two minutes. We have three minutes. So if anybody has any, any comments or questions on the subject... Yes. Um, for some reason, this concept of. Um, oh, yes, I'm sorry, I forgot to say. Hi. Is it on? Hello? For some reason, the concept of looking at the body in the way you described doesn't seem complementary with love and compassion. I don't know why. It just is more like a, um, an emptiness or a sterileness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's, it's not the intention. It's, it can bring forth a kind of tenderness, you know, of, because it's the reality. And so there's a kind of love that's based on attraction to the form as a whole that's, that's not looking at, you know, does that love fade when the body becomes old and wrinkled and so forth. So, and, and then there's a kind of love that's based on reality, you know, and tenderness that this body is, is changeable and it is what we are. It's what the people that we love are. It's what they're made of. And, you know, so it's not intended to be at all contradictory to compassion and to that a kind of realistic appreciation. It's a miracle, really. I mean, you know, we can take it, we take so much for granted and then it's just amazing how the body works. So I think it's more helpful to think of it as kind of a, a medical view, you know. It's, there's, there's a way of loving that, there's a way of being so kind and compassionate as a helping, as a hospice worker or as an emergency room nurse where you're really able to not be freaked out by the innards of the body, you know. So it's a practice of both keeping the, the, the heart open to the person and not necessarily identifying yourself or the person with, you know, the state of the body at the moment. So it's an interesting practice to, to balance those two. And the more that you are realistic about what the body is and how it functions and what it's made of, it's been my experience that there's a deeper ease with being with people as they really are in different situations. So uh, I hope that's somewhat helpful. Some of the teachings are very focused on countering lust run amok and they do get a little carried away with trying to describe the more repulsive, you know, trying to, sounds like they want you to think it's repulsive, but I think a medical model is more wholesome in this day and age for understanding what that's about. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to have a little uh, small group reflection time as we do in these events, and Jim will set that up.
see. So um, I think one of the best ways to learn about this is to talk to other people. So we're going to give you an opportunity now to break into groups of three. So if you just maybe find two other people near you, um, not necessarily people that you even know, um, and we'll have about uh, Yeah, so do, I think there were, there, there may be one group of four, I think. The, yeah, one group of four, yeah. Yeah, so if you want to just join that group, because there's 19, which is three times six plus one. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So, um, so the question that we're going to, the discussion topic, which uh, we'd like, Maybe go around the you know start by each, giving each person you know some time to um, address this question you know kind of go around the group and then afterwards you can have a more open discussion and the question that we'd like you to discuss is um, what have you learned about listening to your body either what is helpful and how to do it more deeply or what practice of doing it has taught you. So again, what you've learned about listening to your body, either the technique uh, or what you've learned from, from uh, mindfulness of the body. So hopefully that's clear enough. And if it's not, uh, you know, work with the ambiguity. And we'll ring a bell uh, when it's time to... Um, gather again to report back to the larger group. Yes? How much time do we have total to manage our own time? Oh, uh, 10 minutes. Okay, so can you give them a, a, a ding? No, a ding.
Okay, so if you can just uh, wrap it up in the next, um, you know, tens of seconds. So we're going to be taking the break shortly, but I thought I'd ask if uh, anyone has something that they would like to share about what this experience was like for them. Is it working? Can you hear it? Okay. It was interesting because we had three very different perspectives and from a dancer being very, very aware of her body to me who doesn't pay attention to my body very often and somebody in between. And so it was a really interesting conversation to learn how to um, think about it. Thank you for highlighting that there are so many different ways in which we can uh, be in the world and some of us are more in tune to our body than the other and there's, that's really a rich um, area. Jim, I think you mentioned break, and people know that if they ask a question, then they're uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe everybody. I shouldn't have, uh, yeah, okay, so we'll, uh, at this point, we'll take a 10-minute break, and, um, you know, let's try to be back here at um, 1.40 um, Pacific Daylight Time, and uh, then... Diana will take us through the other three foundations of mindfulness. So, thank you. Get started. Can you hear me okay? So I want to say thank you to Chris talking about uh, mindfulness of the body. I think um, it's easy to imagine for, uh, I'll say this maybe, when I first started coming to IMC, I went to one of those introduction to mindfulness uh, courses we teach here. I mean, even Chris and I have taught them together with Jim, we've taught them. And we have four topics, and it's easy to imagine four topics, four foundations are probably the same, right? So if you come to an introduction to meditation class here at IMC, you'll be um, told about mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of emotions, and mindfulness of thoughts. They're related to the four foundations, but they're not exactly the same. And the way that we teach them, um, the way that we just teach mindfulness in general and right mindfulness is part of the path to liberation. There is a difference. And part of it we could have seen by the way that Chris talked about mindfulness of the body. It was much more than just um, noticing a sensation in the body. She included things like the elements, air, earth, water. She included things like charnel grounds, decomposing bodies. She included things, um, parts of the body, hair, head, body, hair, teeth, nails. I don't know, there's 32. I don't remember all of them. But So it's really rich. It's, there's a lot here. And this Satipatthana Sutta, which um, Chris introduced, is a sutta that's really important for many Buddhist traditions. 
And many of them interpret it a little bit differently. It's all basically the same, but you know, there's just individual interpretations. And you may notice this if you read Bhante Ji's uh, book, which is recommended reading for this. He has a little bit different, uh, and some um, subtle differences, but for me, I noticed them just because um, I'm teaching this and I was comparing to what he's written there. Um, but so I'll just say, so if that it aren't, if breath, body, emotions, thoughts aren't the four foundations, what are they? What are the four foundations? The first is body, as Chris was talking about. The second is feeling tones. In Pali, we use the word Vedana. Feeling tones, which is different than feelings. Right? Feelings feel like um, emotions we often think about. Feeling tones are a little bit different. I'll go into more detail about these later. And the third is we could call um, mental attitudes, mental states. It's a little bit more pervasive than a thought or you know, something that lasts longer than just a fleeting thought. And it's kind of like a mood or something that's in your mind. There's a called chitta in Pali. And then the fourth are mental processes, mental objects. This is, um, and I'll go into more detail about what does that mean exactly, but mental processes underlie perhaps our moods. And there's a relationship between all four of these. So again, I'll go into more detail, but first I'm going to do a guided meditation. And I wanted to introduce these first because I'm going to talk about them a little bit in the guided meditation. And for this guided meditation, I'm going to invite you to do mindfulness of sounds. Most often we do a mindfulness of breath appear when we're teaching because it's common, which everybody does. I shouldn't say everybody does. It's, it's very common, most common. But one reason why I'm introducing mindfulness of sounds is to reiterate that we can be mindful of just about everything. I would say, actually, you can be mindful of everything. So just introduce this idea. It doesn't have to be sounds. And then I'm going to invite us to look at or experience mindfulness of sounds using these different foundations. Body, feeling tone, mental state, attitude, mood, and mental process. I'll do a guided meditation, as I said. But if ever it feels like I'm talking way too much and this is getting way too complicated about these things, just let it go and come back to mindfulness of sounds or even mindfulness of the breath, if that's more comfortable for you. So I'm going to introduce some ideas while we're meditating. And I just want to reiterate, don't get all tangled up if uh, it's not clear with what I'm saying. That's not um, helpful here. Yes. Thank you so much. I need to be reminded, especially when I'm doing guided meditation, my voice gets low. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Without yelling, (laughs) but 
I, somebody reminded me later, Diana, you're speaking loud, but I feel like you're yelling at me. I'm like, okay, okay. So, so we'll take an upright, alert posture. And we'll just open our experience to the sounds. Allow sounds to arise. It can be the sound of my voice, the sound of traffic, the sound of birds, sound of our neighbor adjusting their posture. Without reaching towards sounds, just be open and allow the sounds to arise in your awareness. And if ever it feels like you can't find a sound or this gets too complicated, you can always do mindfulness of breathing. It's always an option. So doing mindfulness of sounds, how do you experience sounds in the body? Is there a physical sensation associated with the sound arising? Is there a physical sensation with trying to listen, maybe, for a sound that's far away? Is there a certain sensation associated with trying to listen really hard? There's no need to listen really hard, but maybe you will find that you try to. Then we'll notice, is there a feeling tone? That is, are some sounds pleasant? Are some of them unpleasant? Or are some neutral, not pleasant or unpleasant? Is there a feeling tone associated with the sounds?
if you notice that there's a pleasant feeling tone with some of the sounds, do you find yourself moving towards the pleasant or wanting to hold on to it perhaps? there is an unpleasant feeling tone, do you find yourself being repelled, wanting to move away from it? The third foundation is about the mental state or mental attitude. One way we can think about this is to what is the general state of our mind on a spectrum from contracted to really expanded? Is there a general tone or attitude or mood of our mind? in which it's interacting with the sounds. Is there a spectrum from wanting particular sounds all the way to being equanimous about the sounds? Is there an attitude or a mood that you can detect? fourth foundation of mindfulness is about mental processes that underlie many of our mental states. Right now I'll offer we can say some that um, obstruct or hinder our mindfulness and some that support our moving towards greater ease and freedom. So can you sense that there's a prevalence of 
mental processes that um, are obstructions to either being present with the sounds or being present with your experience. Or perhaps there are some mental processes, experiences that support your being mindful of the sounds. Mindful of your experience with the sounds. And if all that I said is feels a little too complicated or too busy, you can just stay with mindfulness of sounds, allowing them to arise in your awareness, or even mindfulness of the body. So the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling tones, mental mood states, and mental processes are also called sometimes the um, four frames of reference. And just like over the years, I've accumulated different frames of glasses. I have sunglasses that are polarized and they help me see far, right? And I can see particular things when I have my sunglasses on. Particular things are highlighted. I have computer glasses that help me see my computer screen when it's so far distance. And when I'm wearing those glasses, it's easiest for me to see things in a particular distance. They come into view. I have progressive glasses that make it easy for me to see you, but not so easy to see my notes out here. You can see my notes are written in really large font because I can't, it's hard for me to see them right from this distance. So just in the same way, there are four foundations of mindfulness. Can be, you can think of them as four frames of reference, four 
um, ways in which to view our experience through how we experience it in our body, through the attitude in our mind, the um, processes in our minds. And there can be um, different reasons why you would choose like one set of glasses, right? Or in, as well as one um, foundation in which to look. But one of the key messages I like to say is that you can, A, that everything can be an object of mindfulness, and B, we can use different frames of reference, different foundations in which to view that object. So this is a little bit different than kind of just mindfulness's bare attention, which is kind of um, out there in the secular world. And I myself have even taught kind of mindfulness of just paying attention. But right mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path includes this really, really rich um, way to explore our experience. The world is out there. And maybe now I'll go into a little bit more details just in a, um, a few minutes. But before I do, to kind of help me um, not get trapped into this idea that I have to explain to you everything that there is about this, I'm going to point out there's a few books to help me with this so that I don't feel like I have to say everything. Otherwise, you're going to get a barrage of lots of information. For those of you who are inclined towards reading, there are some books. You don't have to be this way. You don't have to read all the books or something. I'll say here's this one. It's called Satipatthana by Bhikkhu Analio. Bhikkhu Analio is a, was a student of Bhikkhu Bodhi. So if you have read um, that little book, the eight, I think it's called The Noble Eightfold Path, that was recommended reading list. He's a student. Bhikkhu Analio, he taught a retreat with IRC for us uh, last year. There was people that I know that went on it um, said it was really, really meaningful for them. This book is technical. Yes, um, his last name, A-N-A-L-A-Y-O. He really has one name, Analio. Bhikkhu means monk. He's a monk. He's a scholar monk. I'll leave this book up here. But it's, this is a kind of a technical book. It goes through all the nitty-gritty detail of the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana is the title. His second book just came out, I think, last week about this too. Joseph Goldstein He's one of the founders of our tradition in America. He trained in Asia and in the 70s brought it back to the United States. Gil Franstall, the founder here, has practiced with uh, Joseph. I've practiced with Joseph and probably Chris and Jim have. This book, Mindfulness by Joseph Goldstein, is based on Joseph read this book, Bicornalio's book, but Joseph is a Dharma teacher, so he, less of a scholar. Analio is more of a scholar. So he felt inspired, and he gave 40 Dharma talks. I think it was 40, based on... 46? Yeah. Thank you. Seed. And it's on Dharma Seed. So you can listen to all the Dharma talks, or he turned them into a book as well. So I'm just offering these so that... Just one to show that there's a real richness here. It's a real part of our tradition, and for, if you're inclined, there's more information. And this is the last one that I'm going to talk about. It's called Unhindered by Gil Fronstall. For these um, sessions that we're having, we have handouts, right, for the Eightfold Path. Earlier, he did Dharma Practice Day on the Five Hindrances. And the reflections and practices and essays, we turned them into a book. And this is here. It's available on Amazon. Eventually, these handouts and practices that you have now, they will get turned into a book as well. 
we're hoping that it'll be out this fall, but, you know, we're all volunteers, so <laughs> things happen when they happen. And um, there may be other books in this series. So I'm just kind of introducing these. Now I'll spend just a little bit uh, more time talking about Vedana as feeling tone. I said it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The way that we interpret it in this tradition, as opposed to, um, you'll see it often as feelings, and some people will include emotions. Here, we're not really including emotions. It's more, are things pleasant or unpleasant? And what do you do when you discover something is pleasant or unpleasant? is to kind of observe yourself, you know, moving towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. Just notice that activity in the mind and in the body. It's a natural thing that we do, but just to notice. As well as to notice our reaction. Is it going towards or going away or being equanimous? Is that, is our um, response, is that based out of... um, um, this gets translated in a number of different ways. Is it, um, I don't remember what Gil does. If it's, oh, he, Gil does of the flesh or not of the flesh. So does that mean is it comes from our worldly experience, our embodied experience, or from our more of a spiritual experience to help make this a little bit more tangible? For example, um, um, there's the experience of something pleasant. Do we, um, do we have a greediness where we want to move towards it? And that's kind of a worldly experience, as opposed to um, renunciation. Just this idea of that to support my spiritual life, I'm going to let go of things. So those are kind of the difference of a worldly. Un- Let's see. Gil says, of the flesh, not of the flesh. I think um, Bhantiji does worldly, unworldly. For me, I like like on the path, not on the path, or something. So, that's that that can be feeling tones. Have those, and then mental states. Well, during the guided meditation, I talked about is it um, contracted or expanded? Are we other ways we can think about? Um, do we have some ill will or loving kindness? If we can think about our just this general mood in the mind along a spectrum, and there's lots of different spectrums we can think about, um, including um, also distracted or steady. Right? These are kind of just general qualities, it's mental states or mental attitudes. And then the fourth foundation, mental processes, I'm using that word, um, often, uh, often also called mind objects. I think that's what Bhantiji says. And in the handout today, I forget. I think it may be mind objects as well. This, um, if you look at these books, that one has the most in there. There is a lot in there. Right now, I would just like to highlight two. One um, are those things that um, obstruct or hinder. Um, our practice. That's why I talked about this book, Unhindered, because the five hindrances fall under that category of um, mental processes. And in this book, Gail talks about um, using mindfulness to observe those things that get in the way, specifically sensual desire, ill will, 
sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. These are five things that get in the way, both our meditation, our lives, doing things that we intend to do. These things can um, be obstructions. So that's kind of one set of these mind objects. Another set are things that support us in our practice, in our life. These are called the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of um, enlightenment. They do what they sound like they do. They support an awakening or a loosening up or um, greater freedom, greater ease. And these are maybe not surprising. It starts with mindfulness. Mindfulness is such a key thing here. And that includes um, investigation. It's kind of this part of associated with mindfulness, uh, investigation of what's happening. Energy or effort. We talked a little bit about right effort, right, last month. Um, One, two, three, four. Trend. Effort. Effort is joy. And then tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven. Sure. It's mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. And you may say, okay, this is all well and good, everything you've been talking about today, but really, how do we work with it? And one way that I've been working with it is last month we did right effort, and we talked about preventing and abandoning those things that aren't wholesome. And then we talked about um, cultivating and maintaining those things that are wholesome. Well, you can, ca- you can separate part of what all of these things we've been talking about today is what are those things that we should uh, prevent and abandon? Maybe some of the hindrances, maybe some of our reactions towards unpleasant feeling tones, maybe um, some of those mental states that are about aversion or really contracted. And what are those things that we should cultivate and maintain? Maybe some more um, equanimity about feeling tones, um, more expanded uh, mental states or moods, and those factors that support more awakening. That's kind of like a simplified way to think about this. There's this, as I said, mindfulness is really rich. There's a lot here. And here our intention is just to kind of give you um, a flavor of what's there and maybe a simplified way. What are those things that are supporting the path, not supporting the path? I can look at what is happening in the body. I can look at to the moods in the mind. I can look at specific kind of mental processes that underlie perhaps the moods, as well as kind of um, the feeling tone, just how certain experiences, even the fact that mindfulness is so complicated, maybe do we experience that as pleasant, unpleasant, or even neutral? So with that, as um, I'm looking at the schedule, I have um, some, a little bit of time for questions, if there are some questions. Yes. Hi. Uh, we're talking about, or I, I've been trying to practice with mindfulness for very short periods of my mind, like um, 
um, if I'm a teacher and if I turn to write on the board the sound of the chalk and everything. Um, but I try to find times where I'm not presenting a block between, oh, like, my practice of mindfulness isn't um, acting as a wall between me and the other people. So that's the time when I'm not facing people and I can do it. Now, I, I was wondering, we had a guest Dharma teacher here a few weeks ago, and he said something like, if you're talking to someone and they're just saying something boring, blah, 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 then you should go into mindfulness. Do you think, what do you think about that? I really wondered about it. I think, did I turn this on or off? I turned it on, right? That, um, I think this is my experience. For me to be mindful of my mental state or my feet on the floor, which is really big for me, takes less than a second just to check in. So I think it's possible to be to kind of maybe like flitting back and forth very quickly between what is this person saying and what's my reaction to what they're saying. What are they saying? I feel my feet on the ground to maybe temper my reaction to what they're saying. And then what are they saying? And Does, does that... But those are all mindfulness. I'm sorry? Those are all mindfulness. To call paying attention to the chalk mindfulness, not to disagree with what you're saying, but each one of, it's just where it's focused. Yes, that's right. right. So it's not one isn't more or less mindful than the other. Yes. I was thinking that you were suggesting that we not pay attention then to the people that we were talking, instead do mindfulness. That's the question, right? So that's what I was... Right, that, and that's it's all confusing. We have time for maybe one more. Yes, Fiona. Um, in this range, where would um, sort of a um, pervasive sense of depression, you know, that kind of uh, where, th- where the, you know, you wake up in the morning and, you know, why did you wake up with this sort of ugh? Um, so is that... That's not feeling tone. That's, and it doesn't also sound like the mood you're talking about. But is that, is that what you would that fall in the mood thing? Well, the way that I would answer that depends on many different things, including like why a person is um, looking at that or want, wants the answer for that. But I'll offer this. I would say depression is really has so many different aspects, including maybe a sense of heaviness in the body maybe a sense of kind of um, dullness of the mind, maybe um, a mood of maybe being more contracted or closed in as opposed to expansive, maybe um, some recurring thoughts. So I would say we could break it down into lots of different things as opposed to just being one general. And then those different things probably would fall under different categories. But one... um, One reason why we would do even um, these four foundations, look at them, is to help us get a little bit of um, space between ourselves and the experience so that we can see that there's, we are not entirely that experience. This experience is happening, but it's not solid, it's not opaque, it's not never changing. Things are changing, and maybe the depression we feel more in our body that we just can't get out of bed. Maybe we feel it more in our mind that we just can't quite focus on anything. And maybe that body 
um, mind state. It kind of shifts around. We, would all, we all call it depression, and we put a label on it, and it feels like a solid black thing that never changes, that will never go away. But if we start to look at it a little bit more finely, then we'll see that there's probably a little bit of everything in there. Was, was that, is that helpful, Fiona? Okay. So now we're going to um, break up into small groups, and Jim will help us with that. But I think he probably needs a microphone. So, um, let's see, we don't have quite as much time as the last time. So this time, since there's 20 people, let's, um, I thought we'd do uh, 10 groups of two. So if you find one other person, um, that should work out just fine. And um, So why don't we do that now? <laughs> Okay. Okay, is is um Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, so we're going to have uh 10 minutes to do this. Um, on our first breakout session, we talked about, we explored um, mindfulness of the body. On this one, we're going to um, give you a choice. This is kind of a, a menu, a Chinese menu, sort of, um, to talk about either what have you learned about feeling tones, you know, working with the, uh, noticing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that quality of your experience. Uh, what have you learned about um, mental attitudes or mind states? Maybe that one's more compelling for you. Or what have you learned about um, mental processes or, or mind objects, as Diana talked about? So you, you know, rather than trying to cover all three of them in, in the time that we have, just, you know, maybe choose one and focus on that. So um, if you start now, then we'll ring a bell in uh, just about 10 minutes. Thanks. Good. It seemed like you all found. Oh, sorry. Look, it seems like you all found something to uh, that you had learned about um, mindfulness in these areas. So, 
this is obviously, you know, we're just giving you a, a sampler of the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, encourage you to to both work with the, the ones that you find easiest to pay attention to, but then also maybe set aside some time if there's one of these foundations that seems confusing or difficult to maybe at least spend a little bit of time paying attention to, you know, the for some people there's kind of an aversion to the body. You know, for some you, you might have such a strong tendency to only want to pay attention to pleasant that you don't notice when the unpleasant or the neutral is arising or the other way around. Um, you know, paying attention to the to the uh, mental attitudes sometimes, you know, really kind of noticing that that your thoughts and experiences and arising in a vacuum, that there's usually some um, color to it. Or being an atmospheric scientist, I always think of the, the climate. The, what's the internal climate? And then the, the thought processes or the objects. So, um, and you'll be receiving by email the the material well i guess there are there are handouts here and those will be arriving probably in the next couple of days in your email let's see so and then our next meeting will be on uh, april 13th on right concentration so that's the um the the eight number eight of the eightfold path and then we'll have one more meeting after that that's um uh, summary and um, some additional material. So, the tenfold path. <laughs> yeah, there is such a thing. Um, so, thank you all for coming, and um, we'll be around for a little while after if you have any other questions you'd like to come and uh, ask us. So, thank you. <laughs>